0: Several months ago, we had as a guest Lynelle Cameron, who is the CEO of the Autodesk Foundation. And we talked about sustainability and climate change as a design problem. The notion of this podcast is we live in a world of finite natural resources, but really unlimited human potential. And human potential is the resource on the planet that we have tapped into the least. And I think the idea of sustainability is to think through the design of products more, to design products, put more thought into products so they consume and use less natural resources. So do you think inequity or inequality is in some ways a design problem? Are we through decisions we're making about how what we build and how we build it, creating inequality and reinforcing inequality?
1: I
2: absolutely believe that's the case. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancock's and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back
0: to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment, and if you want to learn more about Island Press or their Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U-R-P. If you'd like to keep up with us here at Infinite Earth Radio, go to our website, infiniteearthradio.com, and subscribe to get weekly updates on the podcast and other sustainability and equity issues in the media. Our topic today is the dignifying power of design. Our guest, John Corey, is the author of a new book from Island Press titled Design for good, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, John. i I read your book. I loved it. I have so many things I want to talk to you about, and we have such a short time so i'm going to I want to jump right in with a quote from the forward from of your book from Melinda Gates that might take us a little time to unpack and Melinda writes, "Great design is not a finite resource. It is a choice we can all make by listening more, empathizing more, and demanding more for humanity. These stories in the book call on us all to insist that even in the face of scarcity and suffering, there must always be room for dignity. So John, why don't we start off with, how would you define great design? And what is the intersection between design and dignity that Melinda Gates is articulating in this quote?
1: Well, I think great design can take so many different forms, and I rarely associate it with aesthetics because there are, of course, so many different aesthetic interpretations of you know, whatever user needs might be in question. You know, I think great design is more of a process than it is a product, a process that honors the users of that space, the organizations that are supported by that space, and that really ultimately makes people feel valued. And that is the intersection that I think Melinda's referring to and that I've tried to create a case for about how dignity and design Are related to one another. You know, I I had heard the term dignity kind of bandied about by social sector leaders and others over the years, and I always had an instinct that it was related to design, but it really wasn't until I started digging into the history of that term that the connection became more compelling or more convincing to me. And so, the more that I had a chance to interview actual people that are impacted by the buildings in this book and elsewhere the more i became convinced that this is a term that we need to understand better and that we need to strive for in terms of a human condition of feeling like your worth is reflected in the spaces and places that you inhabit
0: can you give us an example of a place in your book where you think that the you know the design really emphasizes human dignity? I know there's a bunch of examples, but is there one that jumps to mind in terms of how the design of of the structure or the place really supports and facilitates the articulation of human dignity?
1: Yeah, I think maybe I'll provide two examples. One is a cottage community in Dallas, Texas, that was designed to create permanent housing for the 50 most chronically homeless people in that metropolitan area. It was the product of a broad coalition of social service agencies, funders, and designers. And they came together to both address some of the needs of the homeless, the chronically homeless community there, as well as the needs of the city that was struggling to resource that community. And I had a chance to interview a guy by the name of Gregory, who had been living on the street for upwards of 30 years, drifting from town to town. And when I asked him what that little house that he now calls home means to him, he started talking to me about the key in his pocket. And I, of course, was just like, well, I really wanted to talk about the house, but I'll let him go with this for a little while. And he basically said that this key that he holds in his pocket and that he holds in his hand is the difference for him between being homeless and this now beautiful kind of dignified life that he's leading as with this cottage as his home. And he talked about the sense of security that that key and that the lock on his door and that the door itself bring to him something he had lived without for decades. And so that's just one small example. You know, when when Gregory entered with little more than the clothes on his back, he found everything from a toaster, a crock pot, and a stove to a toothbrush and toothpaste awaiting him. And he said, you know, this place was simply made for me. And that's, I think... An example of design that dignifies. And then because I tried to balance both domestic and international projects, I'll just point to another one on the other side of the world in Rwanda, community and training center for women in rural Rwanda. And it's a place that they can come to learn new skills, to be in community and to continue kind of rebuilding their lives following that country's civil war, the genocide. And the really dignifying piece of that is that the women literally pressed the 500,000 bricks that are used to make up the 17 classroom pavilions and the other structures on this beautiful terraced hillside site. And they just talked about what it was like to not just be involved with the design and the kind of conceptualization of a space, but also its actual construction. And in the process, these women learn new skills and develop new livelihoods, and they simply feel like, this is something that is not just for them, but it is from them.
0: You mentioned that you know great design is is process, and I think in the book you articulate the fact that you've kind of almost seen yourself more as a communicator than an architect or a designer. And and Melinda, in her own in her quote, talks about listening more, empathizing more, demanding more. And I don't know that you know that kind of fits the traditional vision of architecture as a profession, right? Right. But my sense is I I graduated from. Not with an architecture degree, but I graduated from a graduate program in architecture. And my sense is that architects are trained to be seen as artists, to be kind of these visionary figures, but not as like necessarily as facilitators. so So why is it that your articulation of great design involves communication, process? Yeah, we're training architects more in this vision of individual as an artist, as, a, as an expert. Is that a challenge? And, and do you see that changing any?
1: I mean, it's a huge challenge. And really, the projects in this book remain the exception. They're not the rule. They're not how design generally is practiced by the mainstream architecture profession. And yet, there is an important difference between This type of work that was done a decade ago, when I was, you know, one of the people doing it, and what is happening now with this new generation of practitioners, the big difference is scale, and you could add to that quality. So the Butaro Hospital, for example, which is this hospital that was built on this contested hillside during the genocide in Rwanda, was differing, you know, differed greatly from the kind of portable shipping container clinics and other very well-intentioned things that designers through either competitions or actual organizations had tried to create to address the needs of the rural poor in Africa, at least from a health standpoint. And instead, what they did was build a permanent, large-scale, beautiful facility that was not only great in concept, but it was also great in execution. It had an operating partner that we simply haven't seen from the social sector that was willing to take a risk on architecture and share a vision with the organization called Mass Design Group that co-created it. And I think that that is but one example of the the kind of new generation of design that, that we're seeing. But as i said these projects remain an exception there's still the majority of architecture still today is done for a privileged few it's done for wealthy clients wealthy institutions and rarely if ever for people at the bottom of the economic ladder and yet i think it's important to tell the stories of these projects because i believe that we can change how we build and who we build for be that you know a health worker in rural rwanda or you know, projects here in the United States. And I think that these examples are incredibly important, more than just the beautiful images that they have, but the actual stories of the real people who were involved with birthing them together. And I think that, that there should be room for everything in architecture and design. I'm not saying that architects in mainstream corporate practice needs, practices need to abandon their work and start doing work more explicitly for the public good, but I do think that we have to shore up in a great way the societal contributions of a profession that at least to this point has been focused on very small subset of the population, as opposed to the needs that are just so apparent when you walk down the street or open a magazine from, you know, that covers global health on the other side of the world. I just think that there are so many more places architects and designers can be working in, and yet we've so narrowly defined their practices to this point.
0: Yeah, I think that you know there's a tendency to see design as you know a luxury for the rich. It's it's that after all the basic requirements have been met, design is something that's just a, a luxury that isn't a necessity. But you seem to articulate a vision in your book that. You know, good design is more of a prerequisite in some ways for addressing a lot of humanity's most pressing problems, because of the of the way that you articulate that places we work and live in shape our perceptions of ourselves. So, could you talk a little bit about that? How those places shape people's perceptions of themselves, and how, and in turn, how that affects the rest of their lives?
1: Sure. Well, uh, thank you. That's a that's a very generous interpretation of what I of what I wrote. And that's exactly the message that I wanted to communicate to people. And so I start the book by saying that I believe design functions like the soundtrack that we're not even fully aware is playing. And by that, I mean that people are not even fully conscious of the ways in which the places that they inhabit make them feel, whether that's unhappy or unhealthy, or even just plain uninspired. And, you know, we have not ever given everyday people, the kind of agency to expect more of the places that they live, work, and play. You know, I've been traveling around for the past seven weeks, giving talks about the book and about the subject matter of the book, and specifically about the stories and the projects and the people in the book. And I have one line that to me is really fundamental and not rocket science by any stretch of the imagination. It's that you deserve good design. And to talk, I mean, to every single talk that I've given, people literally cry when I say that line. And I actually didn't ever expect that that would be the case. And I remember the first talk that I gave about this book in late September of this year, I had people come up to me afterwards saying that they had cried and I, I just was flabbergasted. I thought, oh, it must have been this image that they saw or this video or something and i heard that again and again and it was about four or five talks in i said well what specifically like made you so emotional or what resonated with you and they literally said that somebody for the first time in my life and these are full grown adults these are in most cases well educated privileged people said that just me reinforcing with them uh, or in this case, I guess introducing to them that they deserve good design—that that like struck them deep in their being—and so if if privileged people who are you know I think by and large the majority of people that were listening to my talks have felt that way. Imagine what people who are much more difficult to reach or in other parts of the world that I simply don't have access to, how little they may believe or have ever felt that they deserve good design, and so. You know, I'm from an, a generation of, of architects that was involved with the AI when they were very heavily adv- advocating that we need to educate the public about design. And I always felt that that was misguided, but I could never really put my finger on why. And, you know, I didn't want to just be a critical person. I wanted to have like some viable alternative. But I do think that this idea of communicating people that they deserve good things is a viable alternative to the kind of educating about design. And I think that we can change expectations about what they deserve. And if we do that, they will on their own, hopefully seek out good design and ideally they will receive or have access to better designed environments. It just goes to show we're at the front end of this movement. This is not like the final piece of the puzzle in order to make the public more aware of design. I think that this is like this is like to the basics of why you, as an everyday person, deserve good design. And I have seen that that's resonated with people at a small scale. My hope is that it can resonate with people at a much larger scale.
0: Yeah, I think maybe one of the challenges with that is that um, so few of our experiences are yes, really with good right. design, right? So much of the built environment is we we expect that this is the way it should be, or this is the way. It needs to be, rather than those moments where you go someplace where a place has been incredibly thoughtfully designed, and you have this amazing experience. I think one of the perceptions people have is that great design is, is expensive. What would you say to somebody who says, "Like we just can't afford better design"?
1: Well, they can certainly afford a lot of things. I mean, first and foremost, the the types of projects that I'm focused on in the book often benefited from uh, philanthropic support, and yet a lot of the foundations that could and I think should be supporting design will say, well, we don't support capital projects or we don't support design. And yet almost every single time I've heard them say that, they've said that from the comfort of their beautifully designed offices. <laughs> you know, And so I would never, ever say that they or their staff don't deserve good design. And yet they are routinely saying that about their grantees. So that's just one tiny area. You look at public sector, and I'm not as interested in the kind of decision makers of the public sector. I'm more interested in the output of how kind of disinterest in design manifests in the the public realm. And I've become really just like fascinated, if not obsessed, by the design of places where everyday people of from all walks of life intersect that's like post offices airports you know dmvs all these other very unsexy places that cut across the economic spectrum you know i think that those are at least the kind of the next frontier of where i want to see Much more attention to people's experiences. And I think design is a big part of that. And so I don't have a lot of the, uh, any like big solutions or answers around this stuff. But my hope by holding up projects like the ones in this book or by drawing attention to the public realm through my writing is to simply start some of these conversations. I've seen some evidence that that works, uh, but I don't at all. Purport to be like saving the world through this stuff. I'm just trying to do my part in it, you know.
0: Several months ago, we had as a guest Linnell Cameron, who is the CEO of the Autodesk Foundation. And we talked about sustainability and climate change as a design problem. The notion of this podcast is we live in a world of finite natural resources, but really unlimited human potential. And human potential is the resource on the planet that we have tapped into the least. And I think the idea of sustainability is to think through the design of products more to design products put more thought into products so they consume and use less natural resources. So do you think any inequity or inequality is in some ways a design problem? Are we through decisions we're making about how what we build and how we build it creating inequality and reinforcing inequality?
1: I absolutely believe that's the case. You know, I think that I'm, I'm obviously an enormous admirer of the environmental movement, but I think that there's a challenge of scale involved with it. And that's that everyday people, individual people, don't really see their place in it. And yet there are big companies like Autodesk that advance, you know, paper policies around their sustainability work, but they don't manage to connect that at an individual level, and I think that the individual level of connection is so important because that's where a lot of action happens, but it's also how we change people's hearts and minds about what's important in the world and why. I would add to that that many of the projects in the book that are arguably the most environmentally friendly or focused involved not just well- uh, credentialed materials, but also the employment or the engagement of local labor and local materials. And that's an expectation that we now have of projects that are done in Africa, at least in the vein of this public interest design work that I advocate for. And it's not yet an expectation that we have for projects here in the United States. And of course, there are some you know, rating systems like LEED that do incentivize Local materials, or certainly within a geographic uh, region, but that same focus on the actual, like individual craft of buildings, is something that is, in many ways, more developed in these developing countries than it is in the developed world here in the United States. And so that's a really interesting opportunity for what we would call, you know, south to north learning. And um, you know, I would just finish this thought with that I really believe that the social component to the type of impact that we want all environmentally friendly projects to achieve really resides with the individual and with the users. And that the more that we can engage individual people in advancing the kind of values and the priorities of the environmental movement, the better.
0: So you went around the world and you looked at these amazing projects is there anyone that stands out of you as a great example of this? Was uh, just an amazing outcome, but a, just also an amazing process of participation to get to this outcome.
1: Yeah, I, I think the majority of the projects uh, really exemplify that. You know, it ranges from that cottage community for the chronically homeless that I referenced earlier in Dallas, that in fact took upwards of a decade to realize, and it it shows that these are not easy problems to tackle by any stretch of the imagination and you can even imagine like how many of the of the most chronically homeless in even just dallas might have shifted during that time um and yet the product you know the project when it was finally completed was worth that time and that effort and throughout that process there was not only engagement with the different stakeholders involved but there was just this constant attention to the end users of this, of these projects. Like that's what kept this thing going. It was not the like interests of the designers or the commitment of the funders, or even the services that were being provided. The need remained clear and present. And that was to get people off the street into this type of supportive housing. And so, you know, there are projects that, that did go a lot faster and that were a lot smoother. Um, you know, I think of the the work of Mass Design Group generally, whether that's the project in Rwanda, the Butara Hospital campus that is well-documented in the book, or the maternal Maternity Waiting Village, which is this amazing space for um, expectant mothers in Malawi, or even their cholera treatment center in Port-au-Prince. You know, all of those were the result of what Mass calls an immersive design experience. And so they send their project teams to not just visit these sites, but to live at these places, to observe these healthcare providers or the actual patients of the the healthcare that's being provided on site. And they learn a lot in the process. The Butaro Hospital that we now know today was radically different than the initial designs that mass, you know, initially presented. And it was different because they subsequently spent time on site. They got a ton of feedback from the doctors and the nurses and ultimately some of the patients about what would make their experience better. And that's where the breakthrough happened. This was not like a competition entry. This was not like, you know, the kind of thing where it's like, A moment in the life cycle of a building where you you get the designs produced, you build them and you go on with things. This was much more iterative process. And, you know, I spoke last week at the National Institutes of Health in Washington, DC, which was at once exhilarating and terribly intimidating. And I talked to these people who are on the front lines of the global health work in a whole array of countries around the world. And they said, you know, that hospital in Rwanda is amazing. But how do we provide 500 of those in a country like Namibia or some other place? And that's, I think, the next big frontier of this work. Because on one hand, we always want architecture to be site-specific and culturally appropriate, etc. On the other hand, we need to be able to reach many more people with this type of work. And so I think it's going to come through the creativity and the commitment of folks like those global health leaders that I mentioned from the NIH, as well as designers on the ground and people also you know, who are providing this care in these countries to work together and figure out how to scale up this work. I think it's possible. It's just not happening yet.
0: So, yeah, two questions out of that. You mentioned Moss MAS, M A S S. S. They're I think they're an architectural firm out of non for profit architectural firm out of Boston. Maybe
1: it's out of Kigali and Boston. Kigali, Rwanda, and Boston. Their their Kigali office is bigger, in fact, than the than the Boston office. They've got about forty five people in in Kigali and probably thirty five or so in Boston. And and. It is an organization that grew out of their exposure to Partners in Health, this well-known, well-documented global health organization. And they were the, the architects of that first Butara Hospital and then multiple health facilities around the world.
0: Are there, are there other architectural firms or architects either you know currently practicing or, or who, whose work you looked at that, that really inspire you or stand out?
1: Yeah, I, I think there's, there's certainly pieces of great work within almost every firm. You know, I completely reluctant to write off any part of the profession. I think that that the profession has so much to offer from so many different areas. So I'm just as interested in for-profit practices as I am in nonprofit practices. I'm just as interested in big, sometimes lumbering, you know, hard to change the direction of uh, corporate practices as I am in these smaller nonprofit organizations that that are practices in their own rights. And so I don't ever try to like typecast that this is their potential based on the kind of structure that they have. But I'll take Studio Gang, for example, which is the practice of Jeannie Gang, a remarkable architect, a remarkable woman leader, and a MacArthur uh, fellow uh, from a couple of years ago. She's she's well-documented. She does extraordinarily well Uh, Extraordinarily beautiful work. She's serving an array of populations, whether that's through uh, some work with redesigning police departments to try to ease racial tension or designing fire stations in Brooklyn and other places as community centers or designing actual community centers for foster children on the south side of Chicago. She's just her practice, I think, demonstrates that you can do extremely high level design with extremely vulnerable populations and that you can also do it in a way that's super sustainable, super sustainable from a a financial standpoint. I would, I would just also point out that several of the firms that are in my book, and this is a book largely of great design for good causes. They were just ranked less than a couple of weeks ago by Architect Magazine, the kind of leading architecture publication, as some of the top 10 design firms in the country, in the U.S. Historically, this type of work was marginalized. There was always this rift between good design and design for good causes. And I think that the, this book, in the words of one of the people that reviewed it, uh, really shreds the notion That there is any distinction between design excellence and the public good. Like those things are not at all mutually exclusive. And yet for a long time, many people in the press and in award programs and otherwise assume that it that they were mutually exclusive. And so I think that this new frontier of design is a much more integrated approach where we're not just expecting this level of design for you know, mainstream clients, but we're also having the same very high expectation of design for projects for the public good.
0: Unfortunately we're we're running short of time. I'm gonna I'm gonna kinda wrap up here with one last question for you. And I so the audience knows I don't ever send out questions ahead of time, and these questions can be sometimes fairly random coming from me. But, so I, I apologize in advance for that. But you, you mentioned the, the need to scale up this, hosp- you know, talk about this hospital, and I think it was Rwanda, and the need to scale up that effort and to, to build 500 of those facilities. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how we scale up the kind of thinking that went into that hospital so that this was happening more universally within the profession and And, more universally, as we as we approach problems, to think of them as as the facility design as being essential to solving the problem. Are there any thoughts about how we would scale up that kind of thinking?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's another part of this next great frontier. So there is one effort that I am very happy to point to. And that's the work of IDEO.org and a social sector leader called Acumen that trains people across a whole array of sectors in what they call human-centered design. At the end of the day, that is the distinction of the type of work that's showcased in my book. It was designed from the standpoint of actual and individual people. That's what human-centered means. And, and IDEO.org has attracted people from well over 100 countries at this point, serve tens of thousands with resources and tools about how to integrate a human-centered approach into all of their work, but also into their you know, environmental and facilities work. Um, I also think that things like lead the leadership in energy and environmental design program from the U S GBC is another piece of this puzzle. And I think if we can put some of these resources together, I think that we can not just raise people's expectations to design, but we can give them a kind of pathway forward about how to achieve that. Um, And then the final thing I would just say related to this is that even as I talk about scaling up something like that hospital in Rwanda, I want to emphasize that I'm a big believer in the expertise of architects and designers. I think that that's what communities rely on them for. I think that that historically we've had this notion that we should turn over some of that design expertise and or power to communities that we would co-design things or use a participatory design process. I think that what we need to do most is what Melinda Gates highlighted in that forward to my book. And that is listen to people, understand their needs, and then use that to create better and more dignifying and more beautiful buildings and architecture and design. And I think it's really possible.
0: John, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you for the book. The book is designed for good by John Kerry and go out and buy it. It's a great book john any parting thoughts for of wisdom for our audience
1: well i just would would say again that you deserve good design and i hope that we as the architecture profession can help both convince you of that and support you in in
0: pursuing that fantastic thanks again john for being here and thank you all for listening we look forward to seeing you next time on infinite earth radio